Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Today I come to you with what will be the last show, the last episode of Rules for Retrogrades of 2021, because I'm not going to do one tomorrow. You haven't heard from me much this past week. We are still in the Christmas octave, the Christmas solemnity. So Merry Christmas to you and your families. I mean, just what a time to be alive, isn't it? I feel like I have extra energy, a little extra pep in my step. I've had an amazing Christmas with my family. I would request prayers for the funeral, which is happening today, of my friend who who died over three months ago. Uh, many of you generously donated to his GoFundMe, uh, Mr. Luke Truitt. That that funeral is happening today. I was at the memorial yesterday and the day before. I'm never away from my family, even for one night, parish orphans and retrograde. So that was a big deal, leaving Hattiesburg, going to my old romping ground of Dallas. Please continue to pray for your own families. Pray for my families. If you would, please pray for my wife, who's pregnant with our seventh kid. Um, Steph, you could, she could really use your prayers. And pray, pray for all of us here in late 2021, the second to last day of 2021, Crazy times. We're getting a reboot of 2019 number three, reboot number three. You know, in, in about 36 hours from now, we'll go into 2022. Remember this time of the year last year? Everyone was saying 2021 is not going to be any better than 2020. It's going to be a reboot of 2020. And that was, in fact, the case. So we used to say good times, good times when we were done with a conversation and backing out. Then in 2016, 17, 18, 19, we said weird times when we were backing out of conversations, me and my friends. And now I'm tempted to start, as we go into 2022, tempted to start saying end times. But, but that, that's hopefully more joke than not joke. The point is this. I come to you with interesting final analysis uh, on the, you know, the, the eve of the close of 2021. Stuff that I'm working on, I'm working on three books. Dr. Michael Robillard is working on the Don't Go to College book with me. He's going to get here in Hattiesburg later today, and we're going to finish up in town. The the Vatican II book, and of course, my version of the Infiltration book, which was uh, kind of dissevered from, from Taylor Marshall's book, which we were originally going to co-author. Um, so I'm working on the, the first two of those together pretty actively now. And I want to share with you my constitutional law analysis of the v2 docs i know a lot of people here mistrust the american constitution that's not what it is by asking what is a constitutional ratification convention sacred or secular you can learn a lot and i'm going to impart a lot today about what a, a really an ecumenical council is it is a constitutional ratification convention this sacred constitutional ratification convention there are so many close analogies to the summers of 1787 in philadelphia the american constitutional uh was supposed to be the the uh the writing convention Turns out they showed up to Philadelphia, barred the doors in summer of 1787. They already had a document secretly organized to get America off of the Articles of Confederation. They had a little vote at the end of the summer, and then they sent it back to the 13 states for ratification, mini ratification conventions in each of the 13 states. And I have learned so much that is a deep insight for the way that sacred constitutional ratification conventions work which is to say uh, ecumenical councils, just from studying in great, great detail. As I was trained to be a constitutional lawyer, right? That's what my JD is in. I I did nine classes in constitutional law or jurisprudence. I was skipping the bar classes because I knew I was never going to be a practicing trial attorney. So I wasn't even taking the classes that everybody else takes. I was just studying the Constitution at the best place to study the Constitution from an originalist perspective. The University of San Diego, we had a special relationship there with uh, the late, great Justice Scalia. That's how I wanted it. And there are so many insights that I'm infusing into my book on Vatican II, which is called Bad Counsel, Good Documents. Have I released that yet? I don't think people know that's the name. Bad Counsel, Good Documents. And it it all comes from, from that experience. Hold on, we're having a technical glitch. 
Okay, so all that will be coming up in this show. I'll give arguments for and against why the V2 documents should or should not have been signed, for and against. From that perspective of what is a sacred constitution, what is a secular constitution, we'll do that in a second. First, I want to kick a birthday shout out to Dr. Yon in California, a friend of the program who has um, been very gracious uh, to, to, to Steph and I, and, and it's his birthday today, and he's not uh, far removed from our own age, so he's a, a contemporary and a well-wisher, and I'd even say a friend of the program. Thank you, Dr. Yon. Happy birthday. Blow out all of those candles and enjoy the cake. I'd also like to tell you guys, going into 2022, Steph's book release, Ask Your Husband, will happen shortly after the opening of the year in early February. That book is on pre-order now at Tan Books. Go get Ask Your Husband. Lots of people are excited for it. Still relatively new, got lost in the, the seasonal bustle, is The Case for Patriarchy, which is a, a, an exciting good book written by yours truly, my number three. Go get The Case for Patriarchy. And as a final note for the year, I'm not going to bother you again, it, at least for 36 hours when I do the first 2022 show. No more in 2021 will I, will I say this after the, the following note. Get out of your red state, conservatives and Catholics and Christians writ large. Get to, sorry, get out of your blue state. Get to a red state. Don't get out of your red state. Get to the broad swath of blood red states between Texas and, Cal, uh, Texas and Florida. It's been a while since I've done this, over a week, so I'm saying the wrong things. I'm, I'm saying get to a blue state, not a red state. I'm saying get to the swath of states between Texas and California. That's the wrong thing. Go to realestateforlife.org, and they will help you get to the blood red swath of states between Texas and Florida, which is really where you want to be. It's where I went when I was canceled. Realestateforlife.org will help. Final note before we get into the hardcore analysis of what is a constitution and why, how does the analysis apply to Vatican II documents, whether they should have been ratified or not. The Retrograde Academy on timothyjgordon.com has classes that will open the third and fourth week of January. They're exciting classes. One is on the constitution itself, relevant to today you know, introduction to American constitutional history. This class I'd been meaning to release the last couple semesters, only did it now as we await the decision, the holding of the most important Supreme Court case in the history of the United States, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, where Roe hopefully, hopefully will be overturned. I have high hopes. I have medium hopes because of, of uh, the, the, the cucks on the court that join Justices Thomas and Alito. Those are the two really solid ones. There, there are three or four other people that sometimes call themselves conservatives. We don't know how it's going to come out. You'll learn about the ideas being bandied about now. You'll learn about the 14th Amendment, which is really the root of what has enabled the blight of abortion in our country. Evil 14th Amendment. And where the 14th Amendment came from, the idea that, that uh, it comes from the idea opposing the Catholic teaching on state power, that the idea that the power should come from the center, from the top. No, subsidiarity says the power should come locally. States should determine their, their own laws, things like this. Well, in America, we went away from that with you know Abraham Lincoln and thereafter. We're going to go through this the Supreme Court history. We're going to go through the basic concepts of constitutional law. It's going to be really fun. Go to timothyjgordon.com. Also, the second semester of Latin. And what we're really opening up that's exciting and we're making them way cheaper are the recorded classes. You can still, if you buy the recorded classes for around 100 bucks, you will still have access to a, 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 a live office hour once a week where you can interact with me and ask your questions on the recorded classes. And we have like eight recorded classes. That register of courses is going to grow. Go to timothyjgordon.com. And happy new year, if you can muster it. I don't know. Do you think people can muster it? A happy new year in 2022? Steph shaking her head no, people. Is this, this, this lovely pregnant lady is, is saying no. All right, so here, I'm going to give you... Um, 
whether it's right or wrong, I, it's definitely right. I'm, I'm convinced of that, but you might not be convinced. So that's fine. Whether you think it's right or wrong, I'm going to give you the most unique analysis of this crazy Vatican II uh, documentary question in the Catholic Church that you've ever heard. It comes from the basic idea that, that gets skipped a lot when we talk about ecumenical councils. We've had 21 of them for Roman Catholics. 16 or 17 of them have dogmatic definitions, but, but all of them are constitutional ratification conventions. So in four points, four relatively easy points, I am going to walk you through this. And I think at the end of it, you'll be impressed how clear one can answer. Here's the conditions by which they should have ratified these documents, these constitutions at Vatican II. Here are the reasons why maybe they shouldn't have. First off, you have to ask, what is a constitution? It is a special kind of document, an, an utterly sui generis kind of document that you have, really have to get into the uh, philosophy of what is constitutionalism. It corresponds with what, which of the three good forms of government should one have? A, a monarchy, that's a good form. An aristocracy, that's a good form. Or a republic, that's a good form. Constitutions are most important for republics, and that, that's all political philosophy. I'm not going to get into that. But what a constitution is, whether we're talking about a secular one, like the U.S. Constitution, written in 1787, ratified in 1788, amended by the Bill of Rights in 1791, or a secular constitution, or a sacred constitution, like the four sacred constitutions at Vatican II. Did you know that? Just for starters, these are sacred constitutions. And, and there are also decrees and declarations that are basically like constitutions. They work like a constitution that were also ratified. You know the names of some of the decrees, uh, some of the declarations. There are like 16 Vatican II documents and all. They're basically all constitutions. But the one that we talk about a lot when we talk about the assault on tradition, the assault on the uh, traditional liturgy, is Sacrosanctum Concilium, and guess what? It is one of the four sacred constitutions there. What that means, ladies and gents, is that the 21 ecumenical councils are none other than the living magisterium in their time and place, when they're, when they're current, being live constitutional ratification conventions. Okay, so the reason a constitution is different from, say, a, a fiction book or a nonfiction book or a periodical, because is, is this, those other written documents have one author or a couple authors, and they're circulated to the world in whatever, under the heading of whatever genre they are. Here's my fiction book. Here's me and Dr. Michael Robillard's nonfiction book, Don't Go to College, you know, we'll be out this summer. Here's the Los Angeles Times. It's a compilation of, of journalists writing true supposedly true things. A constitution's a little different. It does have a small number of authors, like a book or a periodical. But through the nature of what a constitution is, it is a proposed document, proposed by its authors, as something that will bind a whole group of people, St. Augustine talks about this too, a whole group of people are willing at a certain point to be bound by that document and to live their lives according to it. And again, it doesn't matter whether we're talking a secular constitution like, like the U.S. Constitution or the Articles of Confederation before it, or a sacred constitution like Sacrosanctum Concilium or Dignitatis Humanae. It doesn't matter. The, what you have at a constitutional ratifying convention is the authors getting together and they're like, you guys, much bigger group of people outside of just the small number of authors. You, you're, we're all the leaders of this body of people. America, a state, you know, it can, it can be a smaller body of people. Or all of the bishops of the Catholic Church. You get together the leaders, not all of them ex Anti beforehand are authors of the document. Only the authors are the authors. James Madison and they, they think James Wilson of Pennsylvania were the authors of the U.S. Constitution. But 
at the ratification contest, the, the you know between 1787 and 1788, they got together each of the leaders of the 13 states, and they said, "Will you ratify this document? Will you sign your name next to it?" And signing your name next to it means that, in a posterior sense, an ex post sense, you become authors of the document. You become bringers of the document to the people over whom you are leaders. That's the secular version. It is no different in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we have three prongs of the stool. They correspond with the three types of power, incidentally, um, judicial, legislative, monarchical. There are three stool legs. There is, you know, scripture, tradition, which are infallible. And then there's the magisterium, which means the living pope with the living leaders of ecumenical councils when they call one. The magisterium is not in all ways infallible, but in many ways it is. And, and here's what's really, really noteworthy. When they get together at ecumenical councils, that is a, a constitutional ratification convention indeed. And when someone signs their name to that document, I don't know who, I, I, I've looked at it before, but I forget the names now. I forget who wrote the individual sacred documents of Vatican II. Particularly, we're talking about the new mass. We've been debating that for six months. And, you know, I, I like the old mass. Most of you like the old mass. So we're talking about Sacrosanctum Concilium, one of the documents more than the other. But everything I'm saying applies to all of them. When one of the Catholic leaders, the Catholic fathers of, of V2, Vatican II, sign the name on the dotted line, they, they, have, they are invited, my friends, to make a choice by being council fathers. Ratify yay or don't ratify nay. I want to put all of this in the context of the American ratification contest between summers of 1787 and 88. So let's call it a constructionist is someone, or, or a federalist, is someone that, that is for the ratification of the Constitution. Fair game. Or you could also choose to be an anti-constructionist or an, an anti-federalist, someone that was against the ratification of the Constitution. Also fair game. Now, just to get the metaphysics of what actually is a Constitution out of the way, that most people they haven't studied it nearly as much as I have, and, and few Catholics have, because most Catholics don't go study at such a granular level what is constitutionalism. I've studied it both from an Aristotelian Thomist poli-sci perspective. I've also studied it from a legal perspective. I have a very unique approach to this. Many years of study. A constitution, a constitution is, is very different, and this was argued about um, between James Wilson, James Madison, and some of the anti-federalists in the early 1790s, whether or not there was a right of rebellion. We're not going to get all into it, but what they said is this. When a, a sovereign people decides by a quorum of ratifiers, we got the right amount of numbers to ratify uh, the U.S. Constitution out of the 13 states, we reach that minimum number, that means a thing is there, a marriage, if you will, is there, a union is there between these 13 states, even though they had the chance to not ratify, to not make a marriage, to not make a union between the 13 states prior to, it was late June of 1788. Um, the paradox arises that after the marriage exists, and we know this because we're Catholics, this is much more common sense, after the marriage has been opted into, that second, I was at a wedding not that long ago, the second that they both say, I do, now you don't have the right to just get out of your signature to these constitutions. These documents are now like a marriage. Even though you could have not ratified a second before you picked up the quill and signed your name, the second after you've ratified the documents, it's not nearly so simple. Now, getting out of a, a secular constitution, there's only one way out and it's hard. It's revolution which is why the American situation now is really ugly. It's really difficult. There's only one way out. And I'm not saying it's, it's, it's I'm not actually saying that's the wrong solution or that that shouldn't be an option. I, I, I think it always should be. Very decidedly, it should be. But it's ugly. For sacred constitutions, like the sacred constitutions of the Roman Catholic Church, 
it's not that there's one difficult way. There are none feasible ways at all. There are no ways out of a ratified document. Okay, so just think of think of entering into a constitution the way you advise your friend who's thinking about getting married but seems to be expressing doubt. Is this do you, does this make sense to you? Expressing doubt. You're like, "Well, I'm not saying to back out of it. Let's say your friend's getting married in a week. You have time to dither in the, the next week. You have 6 days and 23 hours and 59 minutes to dither, to go back and forth some." Whether you, you, you come to the decision, I'm going to back out now, about a week before, or half a second before you say I do, we're good. We're all good, right? This is the time to go back and forth to weigh pros and cons. Ideally, you'd have done it before a week before you get married, but it's still the time. It's not inappropriate to go back and forth. Um, the nanosecond that you enter into a marriage you say, you know, La Cosa Nostra, right? The way the mafia calls, refers to themselves. This is our thing. Now you've made a new thing. You've made a union between you and some girl. And it's La Cosa Nostra. You can, there's an ours now. You can't undo an ours. You could have undoed, undid a propositional ours before you made it. But once you made it, you can't kill it. You can't unring the bell. That's very important. That's how you have to look at constitutional ratification. Um, all of those individuals at a sacred or a secular constitutional ratification convention who signed their names to the document become posterior co-authors with the author who originally wrote the document before it was ratified, before it was really a thing. So do you understand? Is this clear? Am I expressing this clearly, Seth? A constitution is a different kind of document. When an author finishes writing, let's say I'm writing, let's say I'm Dostoevsky and I just write Brothers K. The second I dot the last sentence, it, it is, it's not La Cosa Nostra, it's my thing, right? It's done. There's no ratification necessary. It's a single author. It's different with constitutions, unlike all the other things you can write out there, books, magazines, newspapers. It's not really an authored text. It's not a perfected, finished thing until all the authors have signed their name on it. And you, you don't have to have all. You have to have most. You, if, if you need 60, 65 signatures out of 100, you need 65 out of 100. If you get 64, it's nothing. If you get 65, it's everything. You see? And it, the author is not the author until it's been ratified. Even though James Madison was done writing the Constitution with a little help from James Wilson of Pennsylvania, by uh, July of 1787, what they did, they got everyone in the building, the little building you can go visit in Philadelphia. They shut the doors. They shuttered the damn windows, my friends. And they said, look, we have representatives of all 13 states here. James Madison has m written most, most of a new constitution, even though we have an American constitution called the Articles of Confederation. The new constitution represents much bigger, more energetic federal government, which the anti-federalists, kind of my people, you know, this, the real subsidiarity folks were, were deeply mistrustful partly because it's bigger government represented by the Constitution, and partly because they did it sort of illegally. The, it's, it's a side point, but the Articles of Confederation was supposed to procedurally require um, uh, total unanimity to get rid of it, and they didn't have that. They'd secretly rewritten this other document called the U.S. Constitution, and they kind of, they kind of forced it through. But so they took, what happened here, I want to move to point number two, give you a little bit of U.S. constitutional history. It's, it's, it's actually quite interesting stuff. So they got everyone together. First off, they, they tried this in 1786. The Constitution was not yet written by James Madison in 1786. They tried to get everyone together at Annapolis, Maryland. No one showed up. They thought it was because Washington wasn't there. He was like a, a god in America. People worshipped him. So, like, we'll try this again in 1787, and I think Madison had most of the clauses of the Constitution written for that one. They, they came ready. They brought Washington, who is a Virginian, like four of the five first presidents. They brought Madison. Jefferson wasn't there. They brought Madison. They brought George Mason. They brought Edmund Randolph. They brought, you know, James Monroe. They brought, and the, all of those were Virginians, by the way. 
I could go on a long list of the Virginians. But the funny thing is this. This is what's kind of uh, interesting gossip. At Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, there was a small group of very important Virginians, all of whose names you'd recognize, led by James Madison and Edmund Randolph, who's related to Thomas Jefferson. They didn't like each other much. Um, and, and Elbridge Gary, they were the three Virginians that were anti-Federalists. They said, we don't like this new constitution. I, I, I'm sorry, James Madison had written it. Also, you had uh, George Mason, Edmund Randolph, and another one named Elbridge Gary. They, unlike Washington and Madison, fellow Virginians who would be presidents, who were very, very pro-constitution, Randolph and uh, George Mason, and along with Elbridge Gary, though he's not as important because he wouldn't be at the following ratification convention in Richmond the next summer, which I'm about to talk about. Those three were the Virginians who were like, no, we don't like this. It's too big a government. There are all these problems with it. It's going to lead to big government problems. It's going to lead to Obamacare in 2014 or whatever. Uh, George Mason is actually an amazing person who saw from the text the, I don't know what you'd call it, heteropraxy, heterodo American heterodoxy that would happen. He saw it from the text. He called it out at the time. He refused to sign at the end of uh, Philadelphia Convention in 1787, along with Randolph. And then what they did, they sent it back to the states. That was the federal gathering with all the states. Then they sent it back and they said, you guys debate this for the next year in in your individual states, in your state houses, in, in town halls, in your state newspapers. And then in a year's time, June, 11 months time, June of 1788, you're each going to have your own state ratification conventions. And we need to get to nine states. We need to be able to count to nine, right? Out of 13. And then we'll have La Cosa Nostra. We'll have a thing. We'll have a union between the states on the basis of this new constitution. The Articles of Confederation didn't really bind them together like one. There are more like 13 separate countries under the Articles of Confederation, which I think is a good idea, by the way. But um, so anyway, I studied every line as a law student under a very famous constitutional scholar. I studied for my summer work every line of the Virginia Ratification Convention the following summer at Richmond. And it had all of these megastars because Virginia was the muscle. The South was the muscle. More far more important than New York, the second most important state. And four of the first five presidents were Virginians. It's called the Commonwealth. Um, and here's what was funny that happened, right? This is in kind of part two of today's show. Edmund Randolph had flip-flopped. He'd changed his mind from uh, the previous summer, whereas he was... Standing hard, he had a hard stance with George Mason against signing the new constitution the previous summer. He'd, he'd bought into some of the constitutional rhetoric, and he's like, now I think we should sign. And at, at Richmond, George Mason was in a low-key way calling him a coward and a cuck. And you, know, you can read every line of this thing. It's, it's rather fascinating. Just for flip-flopping his mind, and I, I'm more sympathetic to the anti-federalists, but he, to be honest, to be fair, there was nothing wrong with doing this. He was, he was cogitating the cognizable strengths and weaknesses over the Constitution over the past year, and he just changed his mind. Patrick Henry, who was with George Mason, didn't want to ratify the Constitution. He was yelling at him. He, Patrick Henry was old, the old crazy firebrand who'd essentially almost single-handedly started the American Revolution in the previous decade, in the 1770s. Now he was in his old age. He was blinding. I think he had bad gas at the convention. There's lots of stories. They had to clear the hall out because of him several times. They couldn't shut him up during the first week of the convention. He would just go on filibusters and he would be yelling. One of the things he was yelling about, he was essentially calling Edmund Randolph a cuck for changing his mind. And I, and I, I like Henry and I like Mason and I like the Anti-Federalists. But to be fair, it was fair. It was not dirty pool for Edmund Randolph to change his mind. This is what he was called to do. Consider it between summer of 87 and 88, and this is precisely what he did. If what I said about constitutional philosophy that I'm about to apply to Vatican II uh, in, in my opening section is true, 
that it's not La Cosa Nostra. It's not a thing. It's not our thing yet until it's been signed by nine of the 13 states in the summer of 1788. Then Edmund Randolph, even though I think he was wrong, I think George Mason was right, all of the appreciable deficiencies of the new constitution would show up with big government, socialist, Marxist-type creep that George Mason was pointing out. You can go read the Anti-Federalist Papers, particularly Brutus. He says, if we keep this in the Constitution, this will happen. Too much taxation. If we keep this, the federal judges will take power. If we keep the necessary and proper clause in Article 1, Section 8, the federal government will beat down the state legislatures. If we keep the, uh, the commerce power as it's written in Article 1, Section 8, you'll get things like Obamacare later. They're literally writing this beforehand because the text of the Constitution was deficient. But Edmund Randolph had the right to change his mind. He was a ratifier. He had the choice to ratify up or say no before signing. Okay? With a Constitution, I'll say it one more time. With a Constitution, it's unlike other written texts. It's not written when it's written. It's written only when it's ratified. That means the ratifiers are like authors. They are authors, posterior. To the writing. It's not a thing until it's ratified. Other documents are, are a thing as soon as they're written, even before they're published. They're still, here, read my unpublished manuscript. It's just as good, published or unpublished, assuming that I'm a pretty good editor of myself. Not so with constitutions. I'm going through all this because what we have in our day is a series of legitimate liturgical difficulties because we've got this tyrant called Pope Francis, this heinous, intolerable, petty, tin-pot dictator called Pope Francis, who hates traditionalists and always, since the very beginning of his pontificate, you guys, a lot of just didn't hear at the time. I did. He's been calling us names for five or six of his eight years in the pontificate. And since July 16th of this past summer, of this year that's now closing, he has been taking decisive steps against the uh, TLM, which, as you know, uh, about 15 years ago, Pope Benedict really opened back up to us. And I've been going this whole time. I'm a lover of the Latin Mass. I've been going since a lot of people, it's great, you started going the last year, two years, three years. I'm a lover of it. I've been going long before I was ever a Catholic commentator. And it's really important to me, like it is to many of you. And we don't want to see Francis take it away. But so that, that's the most important thing. I'm not here to debate any of that. Francis is going to do what he's going to do because I think he's an evil guy. And I think what he's going to do is going to be really aggressive against the Latin mass. That's another show. And I, you've heard me talk about whether he could or couldn't. I'm talking, I'm, I'm here to apply all the analysis I just gave on secular constitutions to the sacred constitution called Sacrosanctum Concilium and why it was ratified in the first place. is this, So this is sort of a derivative issue of all of this action that we've had because of Pope Francis's hatred of tradition over the last six months. See what I'm saying? Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the, consti the sacred constitution which gave us the new mass, was ratified by a staggeringly large number. There are only a few stalwarts who refused to ratify it. And I can honestly tell you this. When, if I were there, I would have, I would have said, look, this looks pretty good. Sacrosanctum Concilium doesn't look too fruity, even though the Novus Ordo is 99 times out of 100 really fruity the way it's done and really bad. I would have, I think I, I, I can honestly tell you, I would have been like, I don't, I don't see any need for these changes and these changes aren't even specific enough anyway. And then when they said, well, there's going to be a subcommittee that comes and makes the changes, then I'd know how it works. I'm an anti-federalist at heart. I don't like other people having power over me. I don't. So I would have been in the very small number of folks that would say, Sacrosanctum Concilium's not bad looking, but I don't think we need it. I'm going to say no. Before you sign your name on that line, you have every right to say no, and they can't ask questions and they can't bully you. A constitutional ratification convention, for Catholics, it's called an ecumenical council. That's all it is. You're there to vote yes or no on some constitutions. Do you realize that? You have the right as a bishop or a council father to say no. 
I would have said, nah, it's, 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 I'm not saying it's horrible. Sacrosanctum concilium. I just, I don't really like it. I don't really like the idea. I don't think this change needs to be made at this time. There were people that on the strength of the text said no. Now, Archbishop Lefebvre, who's the leader, the first leader of the Society of St. Pius X, was not among those stalwarts who said, no thanks, I'm not going to sign. What am I telling you? Was he? Did he vote no contest? No. No. He was a ratifier. That is to say, a new... I mean, he is literally one of the authors in the posterior sense of being a ratifier of the new mass. Not He wasn't on the concilium, the, the congressional subcommittee analog that they formed afterwards to make it specific, but he was one of the givers, the bringers, the posterior authors of Sacrosanctum Concilium because he signed yes. He did not say no. He did not vote no contest. I'm not even sure if they can do that the way uh, the congressional representatives can. But he voted yes. He voted yes for it. Okay, so I want you to think about that. He was in the large majority that voted yes. At Richmond, by the way, in the most important state of the union, do you know what the, the vote was? Voting the Constitution up? Barely passed. It was 88 to 80. 89 to 80 or 88 to 80. Do you know how close that is? That, we nearly had the U.S. Uh, the Constitution of 88. We nearly went back to the Articles of Confederation. I think it would have been better that way. More state power, more subsidiarity. States are the sovereigns, not, not Washington, D.C. 88 to 80. You, that's a close call. That's like, I don't know, 52-48 by portion. That's really damn close. Do you understand that? In the most important state. And by the way, this is in June of 1788, and all like most of the states are having their ratifying convention at the same time, and they didn't have internet. They didn't know how the other states were coming out. It was really, really interesting. It's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, they didn't even realize they had a constitution because the ninth state had ratified until like two weeks afterwards because the news traveled so slow. Very interesting stuff. Vatican II documents, the four sacred constitutions, including... Sacrosanctum Concilium, which eventually gave us the new mass, was not a close call. There were there was only a couple handfuls of dissenters who refused to ratify. So it's real. I have a real issue. I'm not talking about schism. I'm not talking about the consecrations that Lefevre did in in '88. That other people get spun off on. That's not really my issue. I have a real issue as a constitutional scholar, knowing how they work, with someone that refuses to, that, that, that does too little as a kind of anti-federalist beforehand, and too much after you've ratified a constitution. Think of the marriage analogy, okay? Does this make sense? You can do whatever you want prior to saying, I do, at the altar, right? There is no... If you leave someone, it's going to be hard. They're going to have hurt feelings, you know. Don't jilt them at the altar. Don't run off with Niles Crane, you know, in an RV. Tell them, I, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And you're, they're going to make you feel like the bad guy, but you're not the bad guy. You're actually doing the honorable thing. You get married, as long as you're willing to stick to it, you're the good guy. You make a new thing that wasn't in the world before. A new substance, a new marriage. And, and that's honorable. If you say, I'm sorry, I can't marry you. I don't love you enough or whatever it is. It, it'll be hard. You'll feel like a bad guy, but you're not. You're also honorable as long as you're willing to stick with that. No, there will be no new thing we bring into the world together. No new union. There will not be a marriage of you and I. There will just be you and there will be I and there will be a lot of space between us. Either is good. But once you form that union, divorce is the biggest problem in society. You can't go back. You can't change your mind afterwards. Now, Edmund Randolph caught a lot of flack in Richmond in 1788 because he'd changed his mind in an appropriate time. He went from being a, an anti-constructionist, let's not sign this thing, to a constructionist, let's sign it. Archbishop Lefebvre is similar in a way, but dissimilar in most ways. He went from being a... a uh, a constructionist, let's sign it, 
to an anti-constructionist. Oh, don't sign it, or I shouldn't have signed it. That's, that's one way. That's not as important. You can go either way as long as it's prior to the making of the new constitutions. More importantly, he's dissimilar from Edmund Randolph. He's dissimilar because of the timing of when he did it. Edmund Randolph, when he went from let's sign it to not sign it or vice versa, it doesn't matter. He did it before there was a U.S. Constitution. Once you're bound, you're bound. Lefebvre went from signing it himself. One of the bringers of the new mass is Archbishop Lefebvre. Most people don't know that. He, you can go see the Vatican. There's a picture of it with his name there. Same thing with all the documents. He signed all the documents. The ones that SSPX complains about, he signed all of them. He is one of the posterior authors, qua ratifier. Is that not incredible? Is that not amazing? With all the bluster, if you're on Twitter or you're on the internet, social media, you hear all this bluster, Lefebvre was right. About what? I, I, no, no, he, he gave us the new mass. He gave us Sacrosanctum Concilium. Now, I will defend a little bit and say Sacrosanctum Concilium is not the council. This leads to the most important fourth point. Whether or not the text had cognizable def deficiencies or not. But you can't say, oh, he was right all along. Who are the couple handfuls of guys that refused to sign? I have not been able to hear if Ottaviani was among them. But I think there were some documents he didn't sign. If you know one way or the other, ping me. I, I'd like to hear. Very difficult. Too difficult to see. You want to see who signed? Uh, which among the important Virginians signed for the Constitution? Who didn't sign? I'll get you a list in nine seconds. Which of the important New Yorkers signed? Which of the important... Uh, Hamilton... Uh, um, yeah, I think Hamilton signed. Which of the important New Yorkers did not? Um, George Clinton, a famous one, was one of the anti-federalist authors who wrote under a pseudonym. I can find it for you right now. I can tell you, each one, this was a federalist, uh, a constructionist. This was a non-constructionist. They signed it. They didn't. It's too difficult to find that with the V2 documents. It's annoying. But one thing I'm positive about is Lefebvre signed all of them. So he was wrong, appreciably, by all of our, you know, whatever you call yourself. Anyone who likes the Latin mass, no, no, that was wrong to sign. It was wrong. He wasn't right. He was wrong. He's one of the authors, one of the bringers of the new mass. That is beyond debate, okay? Because a ratifier of a constitution is really an ex post author. It doesn't matter who wrote the Vatican II documents. It doesn't matter that Madison and Wilson wrote the constitution. It wasn't really a thing. It wasn't La Cosa Nostra until the people had a year to decide. Ratify, sign your name by it, or don't ratify. So this makes the, brings us to the fourth point. The strangest aspect of this whole debate that, that uh, on social media rad trads get spun off on, which is whose fault is the current modernism in the church? Whose fault is the current modernism in the liturgy? Whose fault is the current persecution that, that people that are friendly to tradition, Catholic tradition find themselves in? And it's really odd that I, I'm not saying that everyone who signed Sacrosanctum Concilium was a modernist, right? I'm not saying that because clearly guys like Lefebvre, were not, they weren't. But what I'm saying is this. You can't out one side of your mouth, this is the most important point, say that the text of the constitutions, before you'd seen the effects of the text or the implementation of the text, you can't say out one side of your mouth, the text was cognizably deficient. And yet, Lefebvre was a hero. You can't say that. If the text was cognizably deficient, at the moment of signage, before you see the way they're going to implement it, then Lefebvre, should have, then he was guilty. He was negligent. He was guilty of missing all the cognizable deficiencies, right? Some would say he was wrong. Some would say he was wrong. But see, that's, that's why it's a little weird, because the other binary is to go to, there are, there were, and you'd say are because the text hasn't changed. They haven't amended. It's not like the U.S. Constitution, which has 27 amendments. They haven't amended, amended those at all from the day they signed them. You'd say the text was not and is not cognizably deficient. 
And that's why Lefebvre and others who were not modernists signed it. And I think that's the best way to, if, you, if you're a fan, like I have friends that are close friends that are big fans of Lefebvre. Some of them come on this show. If you want to defend him, that's the way to defend him. You can't be both A and B. And this is what's called a disjunctive binary proposition. There is no middle way. It's either there are cognizable deficiencies with Sacrosanctum Concilium and the other of the three sacred constitutions at the time, because they haven't changed the text. And now it's either cognizable deficiencies in the text, in which case everyone who signed is a putz, or not. There aren't cognizable deficiencies within the text, and, and therefore everyone who signed is not necessarily a modernist putz or a gullible dupe who falls victim to modernists. They're literally just, there was implementation of good documents or, or sound documents, let's use that. Maybe, maybe they had, maybe they were less than perfect documents, but, but perfectly sound, we'll say that. And the implementation, which is an interpretation of those documents, an evil interpretation of those documents that I think they knew they were going to give all along, was, was proffered by which all of the ratifiers of the documents or some of the authors of the documents who had goodwill are not held responsible. So if you say, well, it's B, because you like Archbishop Lefebvre, then that's fine. Then you, then you and I mostly agree. But here's what you, what you also take on board. Hermeneutic of continuity. The only way you can be a hermeneutic of rupturist, which most of the rad trads are, is to say A. And what is A? That there are cognizable deficiencies in the text. I don't promise you guys much because the world's so strange. Human reason is so fallible. Everything's coming apart. Everything's broken. I don't promise you much on this show, Rules for Retrogrades. I promise you this. I, I promise you with all of the intellectual honesty I can muster, it is either A or B. Either those Vatican II documents have cognizable deficiencies, and by deficiencies, I mean they could have been more flowery prose. They could have been more technically proficient. They could have been drafted in such a way that they were less open to manipulation. That, that's fine, but it, it's still either A or B. They're either deficient facially, the, what we call in the law, under the four corners of the document. They're deficient when they were ratified, and they haven't changed at all since they were ratified. So the text is either deficient or not. If you happen to be a person that goes to SSPX chapels, with whom I agree about most political and cultural issues, basically all political and cultural issues, we just disagree on some ecclesiology. If you happen to be one of those folks and you're interested, therefore, in defending the archbishop, then you have to be can't be. Or else, lest you say, well, this guy signed these things that other guys saw coming and they're facially deficient. For instance, the, uh, I'll go back to my analogy. The American anti-federalists, like George Mason, George Clinton, they're all writing the anti-federalist papers uh, under pseudonyms. There's one called The Federal Farmer. There's one called Cato from, from you know, they're taking all these Roman guys. Cincinnatus. There's one called Brutus, also from Rome famous Roman, federal farmer, a Philadelphia farmer. They're just going under these names, but we think we now know who wrote what. We know P Publius was the main pseudonym of three Federalist authors, and they were John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. They were writing back and forth between the summer of 87 and 88. They're sending published letters in the New York Gazette back and forth, and they're arguing specific clauses for all of America to read in the paper. They're arguing whether or not specific clauses of the Constitution were good or bad. And here's the thing, particularly my favorite anti-federalist author, this is a private kind of side passion of mine, is called Brutus. They think it's George Clinton of New York. And he, particularly his third, his fourth, and his sixth letter, they just go like, it's like Federalist 39, Federalist 51, Federalist 10, Federalist 78. These are the famous ones, you know, I can, I can quote you, Scripture, uh, like, like, like verse and chapter of, of the big uh, Federalist papers. There are also anti-Federalist papers, and they're also numbered. Brutus 3, 4, and 6 are 
amazing. Amazing. I urge you all to go read them. You can read them online. Brutus' third, fourth, and sixth letters. It's like this guy was Nostradamus. It's, it's amazing. But it's not. Why was Brutus not Nostradamus, the anti-federalist? When he said, look, this clause of the Constitu- of Article 1, Section 8 is going to lead to this kind of tyranny. Here's what they're going to do. It's because the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, as proposed and ratified between 87 and 88, had textual facial deficiencies. The anti-federalists were not seers. They were not Nostradamuses. And the way to prove it is because in their letters, they write, this is what will happen. Here's why it will happen. Here's how you could alter the text. There were really radical anti-federalists, kind of like Patrick Henry, because he was just old and sort of crazy. And there were more moderate anti-federalists like George Mason, one of the lesser-known American greats, one of the geniuses. Lost his friendship, did George Mason, with George Washington in that span of time between 87 and 88. They'd been boyhood friends. They lived, they were neighbors. He lost his friendship with Washington because Washington liked the, the American Constitution and Mason wouldn't sign it. Mason and, and Washington and, and Edmund Randolph were all there in Philadelphia. Randolph was originally with Mason. He wouldn't sign it. He eventually went over to Washington's side, and they, they all signed it, uh, aside from, from uh, Mason and, and uh, Patrick, uh, Patrick Lee and some of the, the Virginians. Uh, James Monroe, fourth president, was one of the anti-federalists. There's good reason not to sign it, but the reason they knew is because in the four corners of the document, there were facial textual deficiencies. And we have the luxury of history now. And go and read the, the, the Cato, Cato's fourth letter. Go read Brutus's third, fourth, and sixth letter. They are amazing. It's not that they were Nostradamus. They're just really smart. And that the problems that showed up in America from a, from a constitutional, from a, a poli-sci point of view were there in the four corners of the document. So there were, fa- there were textual facial deficiencies with the U.S. Constitution, and the proof is that they could call the shots, the anti-federalists, really specifically, really accurately. And history bore that out. It's an, a, a, a much tougher question with the Vatican II documents, right? Also constitutions. Because, one, there were so, it was not a close vote. The way it was at Richmond, the way it was at New York. It was not 88 or 89 to 80. It was like almost everyone agreed. This is another reason that I'm, I'm basically not saying Lefebvre or the others, Lefebvre, should be held accountable, right? Because it's like there were less egregious facial errors on those constitutions, sacred constitutions, than there were in the U.S. federal constitution, the secular constitution that I'm extrapolating this whole analogy from. So that, that's the thing. It's, there are errors that are errors of application, and there are errors that are um, errors of text, de dicto and de facto. And the people who ratified a document, and the authors as well, are not to be held accountable for a funky implementation if the document's pretty good, pretty good or better, 80-20, right? If the document's pretty good or better, then you don't hold all the ratifiers to account. This is how all of the ecumenical councils in the Catholic Church works. They're, they're holy ratif- constitutional ratification conventions. Have I made that clear enough? Ratification conventions, secular or sacred, are a really interesting kind of thing where you get a bunch of the leaders of a group that's willing to be bound in a room. The leaders are kind of representing all the people. The bishops represent all the Catholics. All the, uh, you know, Congress people represent all the Americans. And you say, you know, you want the leaders to be the best representatives who care about the common good of those they represent. And therefore, you have them all in a room, a couple hundred people, or if it's Vatican II, a couple thousand, and you say, are we willing to bind ourselves to La Cosa Nostra, this thing? This document, which is kind of going to be king, it's kind of going to, it's just paper and pen, but it's kind of going to govern us. Are we willing to do it? And there are either, if there's an error later, as there's clearly a lot of error in the church, if there's an error later in America, America's done, basically. The Constitution is done. They've destroyed it. 
If it's done, then you say this was either an error of, uh, of design, which is to say an error in the text, or an error of manufacture, which is an error of implementation. Is it a design error, a text error, or an implementation error, a manufacture error? In the former case, you hold everyone accountable. In the latter case, you hold only those accountable who, who purposely implemented a poisonous version of the otherwise fine design. You see why this works out? You see how this is? You cannot have... I don't know much. I'm not sure what's going to play out in our country, our world, or our church. I'm not even sure we're not at the end times. You know, here is at the last show of 2021. As I, as I bid you adieu for the year. I'm not sure about that. One thing I'm sure about, it can't be both ways. Either the sacred constitutional text, like the secular American constitutional text, is facially textually deficient, or it wasn't facially textually deficient. If it was A, you hold all those people accountable that signed it. You would never say under that auspice, under that set of circumstances, that Lefebvre was right. That's ridiculous. He probably shouldn't say it anyway because he did sign the thing and there were people there that didn't sign it. But if it's case B, then they're much less responsible for signing it. They just didn't see the kind of... The only way you get to, well, there's, there's nothing in between A and B. The only way you can say is like, well, there were people there like uh, some of the lefties were saying, we know what we're going to do with the ambiguities later. Okay, that's when you get into hermeneutics. And this isn't a whole show on the hermeneutics. It's just... You get into hermeneutics only by necessity. The necessity of, oh, well, we have to interpret any magisterium, uh, any magisterial constitution in the history of the church faithfully because there's always a couple ways that any text could go. Article 1, Section 8 has all of these little turns of phrase that could go big gov or they could go small gov. What am I always saying? As an American, we're hermeneutic of continuity. We're always going to uh, apply, we're always going to defer to the state government, small government, right? It's, it's an assumption. That's the idea of America's local power, subsidiarity. The state governments always should be privileged. So if there's an ambiguity, that doesn't mean a deficiency. There's just some ambiguity in text that's not deficient. You just, you apply an interpretive aid. What is an interpretive aid? It's called a hermeneutic. But the point is this, the second you say, no, there aren't large sweeping categorical errors of construction in the text of a constitution, like Sacrosanctum Concilium, there's nothing heretical there. Then you say, okay, so we're in situation B. It was pretty good or better text that was, designed, that was interpreted in a very political way, a very toxic way later. Yes, there was a quorum, I believe, and I'm working to show you this in my book, Good Counsel, Bad Documents, that they knew from before the council they were going to do this, but that still doesn't make everyone responsible or accountable. And by do this, I mean they're going to interpret it in a, in a toxic direction. There's always some ambiguity in a text. That's not what we mean by a technical deficiency. In a constitutional text, whether it's sacred or secular, you can't be perfectly uh, explicit, perfectly specific all the time. There are vagaries that can be exploited. Okay, so I, I hope that helps. I, I, I think this historical analogy to what is a constitution, sacred or secular, it's a unique kind of written document that is not a thing until it's been ratified. Step two, it's, it's, it's not written when it's written. It's written only after it's been written, then ratified. It's different from any other kind of writing out there. Every other kind of writing, even before it's published, it's still, it's still completed, right? Constitutional documents are different. And that should affect the way we apprise who's at fault for the new mass. Because the new mass is bad. It's bad. And it's being foisted back in our laps in a new way for the first time in 15 years because Pope Francis is killing Samorum Pontificum. Day by day, week by week, he's killing more and more of Samorum Pontificum. We need to get to the bottom of this. This is why the reform of the reform, not the weak version that Benedict put out, but the strong version of it that Benedict was too weak to accomplish, needs to be seen to, needs to be accomplished. 
constitutions are, are technical. I hope this has been somewhat helpful at giving you a roadmap. I'm very confident in the things I've said. Leave a comment in the com box, like, subscribe, click the bell. Have as good a new year as you can possibly have, people. I think America has been post-constitutional for 100 years. I think we're, we're slowly or fastly on our way out. But maybe we can turn this around if we can get rid of abortion at this Dobbs versus Jackson case. I, I still think it's probably too late. The cracks in the wall are big, but you've still got the single cell, your families. Stay strong. Stay tough. Stay smiling when you can. Be a, be a tough soldier, but a smiling one as often as you can. I love you guys, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Support this program on Patreon if you can. Timothy J. Gordon. We, we could use the beginning of the year donations. God bless you all. Subscribe, like, click the bell, leave a comment, 